This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. Hello, welcome everyone to another BNE podcast. Um, I'm joined today by Yevgenia Slepsova, who's a senior economist covering Russia CIS with Oxford Economics, and by Elena Rybakova, who's at the uh, Institute for International Finance, uh, another economist. And we're going to talk a bit about what's going on in our patch in Eastern Europe and uh, post-COVID recovery. So ladies, welcome. Very nice to see you again. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Morning, nice to go back. <laughs> Morning and afternoon, yeah. Yes. Spring is here. Elena's in her sunroom, something we haven't seen here in Berlin much at all in recent months. Um, to dive straight in, um, it looks like we're now coming out of the crisis recession that was COVID, although the virus is still with us. But um, the end of year numbers are coming out and there's been plenty of surprises. Uh, a lot of economies have done much better than expected. Uh, Poland claims to have had the mildest recession in the world. Um, Russia, of course, had contracted a lot less, but even countries like Ukraine have come in with something like three or 4% contraction when they were expecting six or seven. And there's a sort of bounce back going on. Um, it seems, I don't know, my take on it, we did a piece in December saying that there's this huge pent up demand that's been suppressed as everyone sat around at home. And one of the first things to do um, after the, the restrictions come down and people start to get more optimistic, go back to work, is that this pent up demand will be released and give a huge impetus to the, uh, to the economies. And on top of that, we're seeing the um, economy, uh, commodity prices go up, which is one of the reasons why Ukraine has done so well. Um, and another reason is countries like Russia reacted well and had lots of fiscal reserves, and so they were able to cushion the blow. Um, what's your take on that? Why, why you know, how, how much of this is bounce back? Is it to do with pent up demand or um, is it still like we're not out of the woods yet? Shall I, shall I start with these structural issues that I feel that played a role? Please. Yeah, so um, I guess I can share my screen now. Um, the idea is, well, that's my impression, I think, which is very, what, what I find very important is, can you see my screen now? Yeah. yeah. The charts, yeah. So uh, unlike developed economies, Emerging markets in general have a much lower share of the sectors that are directly affected by uh, the lockdowns. Yeah, so we see this Oreca, which is hotel, restaurants, catering, a uh, much lower share uh, in Russia, Ukraine, than compared to the UK, US, France, for example. Same with travel and tourism. Um, even lower, even though their demographics is not good, but the life expectancy is also short. So the share of population above 65, which is most vulnerable and which is most likely to end up in hospitals is also lower than population density, huge discrepancies here between developed world and um, well, particularly um, if we take the country where I'm in, the UK, which has been really, really painfully hurt and 
So is that you're saying basically the very undevelopedness, undevelopednessness of the countries have actually been an advantage in this situation because the economies. Are yeah, you can't afford to go to restaurants so much. That's one thing. But the demographics, yeah. But in terms of development, you know, a lot of people look at let's say at hospital capacity, healthcare system capacity in terms of uh, total number of hospital beds or doctors per thousand people, which I find is incorrect because it just looks like, oh, developed world is looking better. Mm. But actually, if you take it as a share of people aged 65 plus, again, the most vulnerable ones, and these countries look brilliant, at least in this sample. So, you know, actually, structurally, I think these things allowed for lower COVID transmission and hence shorter lockdowns. They, yeah. They, they had low serious lockdown in March when they had much less COVID, and then second time round they took it almost, you know, less and seriously. So they therefore they they had less lockdowns, and and due to these structural issues, it had less um, less of an initial contraction as well. I, I feel right. And to what extent, because the way developing markets are set up, um, they keep a lot more cash on hand. That the Western markets are a lot more leveraged. And so any disruption in, in theory can cause a lot more problems because you you, you change those leverage conditions. Um, and somewhere like Russia, I mean, it's got nearly $600 billion in cash um, and it's been running an austerity budget all the way along. And so when they needed to roll out, you know, the, the resources, financial resources to deal with all of this, um, it came very fast. But at the same time, they actually didn't spend much money compared to the West. But isn't that a function of the leverage, is that the Western markets have to spend a lot of money in order to keep the system going, whereas the emerging markets, because they're sort of simpler, shallower, can get away with spending less? Well, I mean, the developed markets are more leveraged, I'm sure. Look, I should let Elena say now, before I dominate the conversation, <laughs> I'm sure you'll have thoughts on that. No, I think in terms of spending, I think emerging markets are much more developed on, on, on global markets for funding. And the, the frequency and the extent of the spikes to their cost of funding is much higher than developed markets. And I think that determines your fiscal sustainability. I think we have this very static uh, analysis of fiscal sustainability, you know, growth minus interest rate, and we plug in a new interest rate and we find, oh, that's sustainable now or not. But the fact that this interest rate, you know, has a distribution, right? And a distribution can uh, is much more skewed towards higher values. Um, and also the volatility is much higher for emerging markets and developed markets. And I think that determines it a, a lot. And that's the first point. And the second point, which when you also talked about is, is the depths of the local markets, you know, the US or, or Italy was the very high debt. They can fund a lot from the domestic savings, uh, long-term savings, um, not just rely on external markets. For emerging markets, we mostly have to rely on external markets. So I think that gives you a fiscal constraint uh, is much tighter. And in emerging in emerging in Russia in particular, and I'm very was very curious to see Evgenia's slides because um, we do indeed have um, sort of smaller proportion of elderly, uh, and that's what makes the statistics look good. But you know. The, why? Because the life expectancy is low. Yeah, life expectancy it's, is not good. Yeah, so the demographics generally is horrible. But yeah, in terms of people most vulnerable to COVID. Yeah. yeah. And even with those, I'm very curious about your take, even with those charts, you know, you looks good on the paper, but 
We do see anecdotal evidence from across the regions about healthcare systems being overstretched. And one of the reasons why they decided to ignore the lockdown and actually stop counting in a way uh, is because of this uh, risk of the backlash from the population being frustrated by the lack of service uh, provision, healthcare service provision. So I wonder how that reconciles with the numbers that uh, you were showing on the chart. Well, the thing is, it's it's also about density of such situations. Yeah, like obviously in Russia and both in Russia and in Ukraine, there will be regions that will be overwhelmed. It's not to say that, oh, they didn't have like COVID to speak of. Of course they did, but it, it's also, if you speak about the whole country as a whole, it's, uh, you know, the situation can be different. And that, of course, we don't have enough data. I'm just, I guess the numbers I was showing are kind of input variables, but in terms of Output, I mean, we also saw some very high excess deaths in Russia. Um, so it could be that the attitude is just like the attitude that the government takes also matters a lot. And, uh, you know, we can go back to the issue of just, yes, emerging markets just can't afford so much fiscal stimulus as developed markets. So as a result, uh, diff different decisions were taken. But, you know, if we continued that argument at the beginning of the pandemic, the conclusion many economists made from that is that, oh, well, if you can't afford so much fiscal stimulus, that means you're going to contract more. And this hasn't happened, right? So I think there are structural reasons there. I mean, in Russia also, they, it was difficult to fire people, particularly in public sector, you don't fire people. And the share of the public sector is higher in employment. So that's another thing. Ukraine has its own specific, um, specific element, which is different from Russia. Ben was speaking about demand. Yeah, once you've had the lockdown, and then what happens to demand? Well, in Ukraine, real income still grew by nearly 10% last year because the labor market is so tight, the labor shortages that mm. people just left Poland, you know. So what um, is your, your guys' prognosis then? In Russia's case, I think it's public sector that helped more. So well, what's what's your prognosis then? Because I mean, it seems now that recovery has started, and if I remember back to the end of last year, people were talking, "Yeah, it's not really going to get going till the second half of 2021." But um, it seems now that it's actually going much quicker than expected. I mean, what's your prognosis for the year? Is there going to be sort of gathering momentum uh, in economic recovery? that's sort of already taking off now and could be looking at some sort of, you know, mild boom as everyone recovers and this pent-up demand is released? Well, maybe I start and then um, I'll let you get it continue. So I think on that, especially for Russia, I think it's very it's in a very strong position because we're going to see is now the realization of reflation and the commodity prices. I mean, that's going to hold up for a while. And so the vulnerable countries are those that in this environment are sensitive to global rates, you know, to steepening and also or increase in real rates. And Russia is not borrowing, right? So it has the perfect sort of per pickup on the commodities, sort of domestic demand will continue humming along and absolutely unreliant on, not reliant, reliant on the global markets. Ukraine for now can enjoy the party as well. And we have seen, as you mentioned, record uh, inflows into local markets, despite 
everything being done wrong and IMF coming in and leaving. Um, but um, so Ukraine is the typical boom bust story on the on the markets, I think, where the situation is great. You know, everybody sort of comes in to hunt for yield. And then if we do have like a temper tantrum, like hiccup in the global emerging markets, again, Ukraine will be among the ones to suffer. That said, because if we like, in liquidity, it usually happens in slow motion in Ukraine. So you see the sort of like the train wreck in slow motion because there is not enough liquidity. People cannot withdraw from the markets as fast as they can from Brazil or South Africa. Mm -hmm. So the markets doesn't move, 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 but then the bleeding continues, continues. And we start talking about to the IMF again. But in the near term, I think they, you know, they can enjoy the party. Let's, yeah, let's, right. hang on, let's pause on Ukraine for a second and I'll share my slide because uh, this I thought was quite remarkable. Uh, if you can see it now, this is the Ukrainian domestic bond market. And they can see last year there was a big sell-off uh, in the, the OVDPs, the local denominated debt. And then since the beginning of November, when the optimism and the vaccine started, the market's taken off again. And if you're looking at the asset markets, they seem to be very optimistic about what's going to happen this year. And there's also the question of the hunt for yield. These bonds pay 11, 12%. You can't get that anywhere. But specifically, the Ministry of Finance in, in uh, Ukraine, I think it's just hoarding as much money as it can get at the moment because the IMF is not going to pay out or will only pay out $700 million that it was supposed to pay last year. And we talked about this last time. I mean, can Ukraine get through without the IMF money and this um, local market? Is that enough to finance the gap? Because they're going to have to come up with something like $10, $12 billion for the third quarter payments. Well, I, th I think in Ukraine, really, as long as there is an ex expectation that IMF corporation will not break down, then and also externally benign market conditions, I think that's very important, then markets tend to have always kind of forgive Ukraine all these soft issues like corruption, judiciary. It seems like that only, well, local Ukrainian commentators and the IMF care about them. I think markets not so fast. They, they get, tend to get worried much more about things like fiscal deficits, you know, and things like that. Um, so I think this sort of belief is important here. We know that the bottleneck comes in September where big um, dollar euro bond repayments are coming due. And that by that point, Ukraine really needs the IMF. But um, as in, usually my, my take always on Ukraine is that when the reserves are above three months of imports, you know, and interest rates are doing okay, then they're not putting too much work into doing very, very difficult institutional and anti-corruption reform. But I think what's interesting, a new element that has appeared now is the Biden administration. There are some clear signs of Biden administration having influence on Ukraine. Um, so, well, you know, the sanctions on Medvedchuk, and the closing of the pro-Russian channels, and the, the way it was done legally can be, you know, questioned in terms of legal practice, but given that... Uh, Zelensky doesn't control the constitutional court sufficiently well, for example, things like that. And mm. he works with the tools that he has. Um, so it, it, to me, it seems like there is a sign that Zelensky really started to move. And just the things they need to do after the regress that we saw in the second half of the year, they're really not easy. But it looks like the wheel is there. And so I think for now the markets will be 
forgiving as long as we don't have a risk of exactly aware. Well, it does, it's very confusing, though, because Zelensky seems to be flip-flopping in so much as Smalley, the former central bank governor, um, was sacked by uh, Zelensky, and that looked like it was at the behest of the uh, the oligarchs. But then now he's started closing down, as you say, Medvedchuk's TV stations, and it also looks like he's taken a line against uh, Kolomoisky, and he's going to cut off the um, the whole Privat Bank effort trying to, to take that back. Um, and yeah, it, but it's not clear at all what what the Biden role um, is, what the Biden administration's role in all of this is. But well, yeah, we don't know officially. But there's a lot of rumor that that is everybody felt real a real change yeah. uh, all of a sudden. I don't know. Elena is in Washington. Maybe yeah, <laughs> no, doesn't that doesn't sort of doesn't transpire necessarily. No, but I think Zelensky has been consistent in, in a few things. He's consistent in his lack of conviction or preconceived macroeconomic policy uh, plan. He didn't have it before Geruk got elected and he doesn't have it still, right? Mm. So with that, it's probably easier to be opportunistic. So whenever the pressure comes either from oligarchs or from the US higher, that's where you yield to, right? Uh, and for now, as you say, it's possible that with the Biden administration, the principles are more towards uh, sort of anti-Russian oligarchs. They, It's not enough for them to be, if they're not interested enough in Ukraine to go into further details of uh, uh, technical issues like the central bank, uh, so they just sort of, you know, skirt the issue a little bit, you know, do things uh, here and there in terms of symbolic value and, and carry on. Um, and in terms of the markets, um, we I remember one of the meetings from the IMF and one of the countries and IMF again was lecturing, you know, as, as, as we sometimes, so we, they sometimes do. And the authorities said, well, the island is still floating, you know, like <laughs> you can <laughs> knock yourselves out, but the island is still floating. So in that case, you know, in the case of Ukraine, just when we sort of all say all the all possible sort of point out all the shortcomings. The island is still floating. They're still having this massive inflows. They, it's enough for them to survive this year if this continues. I do think there will be hiccups, uh, especially we're already seeing what's happening with the rates, uh, in, including in the real rates in the global markets and the, the sort of the pressure that the uh, markets are having with the Fed in terms of pricing in much earlier hikes. And the Fed needs to convince them that it's not the case. So I think... Um, that that is the worry for Ukraine, but in the short run, I think they can manage their external payments without the IMF. Thinking about that, um, I mean that that's one thing uh, from the the good news that we had. One piece of bad news is inflation is back, and that's I mean uh, Nabulana, the governor of the central bank, she came to her meeting with her her full stop, her period button. This brooch signal is fantastic. It's very simple, you know. What's he, what's he wearing and. But I mean, she made it clear there's going to be no more cuts. And uh, the same in Ukraine, uh, they're actually talking about rate hikes, you know, reversal of the easing. Is inflation a problem? I mean, isn't it going to carry on going higher or is it just the devaluation effects from last year working their way through and we've got six months tops? No, I mean, it's definitely food prices feeding, uh, feeding in massively. Global food price increases, uh, which grew by about like 20%. But um, in Russia, well, okay, it's a very hawkish central bank traditionally, which um, which flagged that, look, inflation expectations that have spiked as a result of this can have second round effects that would then feed into core inflation, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, I think the demand, underlying demand pressures are different in Russia and Ukraine. So, um, in Ukraine, you do have this super strong real income growth, 
So when we saw inflation fall to 2.6% as a minimum, which looked shockingly low, that was the pass-through of 2019 revenue appreciation when they uh, currently appreciated by like 19%. As soon as the premium starts, stops appreciating, even if it stays flat on base effects, your near terms, you will have underlying demand pressures for inflation to go up. So I think Ukrainian Central Bank might hike at its March meeting already. They really should. Also, they are more vulnerable to external uh, um, to external Fed conditions and etc. Uh, in Russia, demand situation is different. Real inter- real incomes are not growing. Mm. Yeah, but, but Russia is more vulnerable. Um, it's it's interesting that actually the currency is much more volatile in Russia than in Ukraine, despite Ukraine being this high yield economy. So. Talking- yeah, the sanctions situation, all of that can latest depreciation of ruble will again start passing through. Talking about the currency, I've got another chart I wanted to share and ask your opinion on. Um, oh, can you see that? Have I chosen the wrong one? No, it's blank. Uh, Let me get it again. Here we go. The ruble, um, the oil prices have gone up remarkably in the last few months, and the ruble has stayed pretty flat at 74, which makes no sense because they've gone up like 10%. If you can see this, um, there seems to have decoupled. And uh, given that the, the price of oil of 65 is well above the cutoff for the, the, the budget rule to kick in, which is 42, um, is that responsible for this decoupling between the ruble and the oil price? or is it? Because there's also a lot of talk that traders are holding back because they're afraid of U.S. sanctions, um, and that's why the ruble's not been moving. Well, what do you think is responsible for this? Well, fiscal rule also, it, it does not let ruble appreciate a lot when the oil prices go up, but... Um, the purchases haven't been that big by the central bank of purchases. Um, I think there is a clear um, clear sanctions risk premium. The, the note that I shared with you shows very clear correlation. As soon as the odds of Biden being elected um, exceeded 50, ruble just completely decoupled from oil. That, that that was kind of an interesting inflection point. So it does seem like, I mean, it, I do think it's uh, exaggerated um, because I don't see clear triggers for um, significant sanctions that would affect the Russian economy. The way sanction policy needs to work, it needs to be, you know, there's a step by the you know, by the other party and you respond. If you missed the boat last year with hacking, it's not exactly good signaling to start reacting now. It's my my sort of impression. I think it really needs to be tit for tat and then it works. It works as a signaling device. Equally, you wouldn't ease sanctions also, you know, for no reason without any step. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got five minutes left, um, but the sanctions uh, are key um, to the whole story. And 
Lavrov came out in February when uh, Borrell was here, uh, was there in Moscow, and he made it quite clear, things have changed, there's new rules of the game, we're not going to tolerate any more any criticism or sanctions that damage our economy, we are prepared to break off diplomatic relations, and the ball's in your courts. We're willing to work, he said also specifically that um, Russia is willing to talk about arms control, they got the start to, there's a whole bunch of other treaties that have been nixed uh, in the meantime, ABM, uh, INS, and they'd like to have those back, but they're not going to come to Washington with their hands out. And actually, um, and the Biden administration has ordered a report from the intelligence community to assess the Russia problem, and it's been talking to the European governments about coordinating, and it's reported, in fact, they're going to give a decision this uh, today or this evening about what they're going to do. And Evgenia, you, you did a note just this week saying you're expecting the sanctions to be light and symbolic, and I think that's what the market is expecting, but everyone's on the sideline. It seems to me the markets are staying on the safe side and have priced in. I mean, it does seem like there's about 5% stimulus. Oh, sorry, 5% risk premium. And the thing is, my concern in terms of sanctions is that there's not that much you can do more without soon running out of your powder. So we know that we burn your powder. You know, yeah, we know that there is Russian ruble. That, that's on the agenda that could be used. Yeah, what kind of tools the, government, the US government has. If you're going to use this now and... Five years down the line, Russia invades a NATO member. You really run, run out of your, okay. your tools. You know, yeah. like you can't switch off Russia from SWIFT. You can't easily even do something similar like what happened to Veripasco when you hit massive, like an oligarch who is systemic in certain assets globally. You send aluminium yeah. prices up 40% overnight by doing that. Elena, what about you? Because you, you guys are IIF are tracking fund flows. I mean, what do you see? So we see already some outflows from emerging markets recently. I think that's uh, that's a turnaround and it's something to be watched um, after record high inflows just a couple of couple of weeks ago. Um, and in terms of sanctions, I think it's true. We have very few options left from the US side. So Lavrov saying what he's saying is just solidifying the position that Russia already has. Mm. We, we know that you have little ammunition left. You want to fully chop us off? Well, you know, let's talk then. Mm. So I think um, <clears throat> the only caveat to that is that all the people that are coming into the administration that uh, could work on this area are really the, the experts in the area. So we see, we saw some critical appointments in the National Security Council and State Department, in the Treasury of ex very strong experts. So I think if there is a tit for tat, and I do think also I agree with Evgenia that we'll have to something more aggressive action from Russia. So if Russia does test and again miscalculates and crosses the red line, people on this side will be very prepared. Um, and they will be would have thought about the, the risks and the spillbacks and the spillovers to the global markets from any measures that they would consider. So it would not be sort of a, a haphazard Rosal-like event. It will be a very premeditated, pre-telegraphed, very thought through event, which probably gives them confidence to, response, to respond if something uh, more aggressive were to happen. So I think that's for the markets. The market probably is going to come down now. It's going to love ruble, Russian assets. But markets shouldn't entirely forget that people here sort of would be very prepared in the technical sense. Uh, Elena, for, uh, yeah, I'm afraid we're... And they we're, all we're, we're, the Trump administration, these people. So that's why we saw this thing. We're out of time. We're about to get cut off. Um, so, ladies, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to talk. It's most fascinating. We'll do this again very soon, okay?
Thank you. Thank you. Very, yeah, very good conversation as always. <laughs>